During the last Minnesota legislative session, they passed a lot of bills dealing with social issues such as women's reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, and legalizing recreational marijuana. There's one major issue left that will be dealt with in the upcoming Minnesota session, death with dignity, which is badly needed. The bill is called the End of Life Option Act, and it gives dying patients a real choice. Here to talk about this legislation is Dr. Rebecca Thoman, who is the program director of Doctors for Dignity. Dr. Thoman, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Jim, and for taking on this important issue. Absolutely, and it is an important issue. Dr. Thoman, can you explain the specifics of the Death with Dignity Bill? Sure, Um, and thanks for giving me the chance because I know there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation out there. So medical aid in dying is the actual clinical process that we're talking about. Um, It has some very specific criteria. So um, it's a medical practice in which a terminally ill adult with a six-month prognosis, so someone who would be hospice eligible, and someone who can make their own healthcare decisions, so not somebody with dementia, for example. It gives these folks the opportunity to ask for and then receive a medication that they could then self-ingest for a peaceful death if and when their suffering became intolerable. So this is not euthanasia. There are no injections. The doctor doesn't do anything to the patient. The patient receives the medication and then chooses if and when to use it. So it's totally self-directed. Also, I would say that two physicians have to agree that the patient qualifies. If there's any question, they can always refer for a mental health assessment. Um, And absolutely no one has to participate in this. There's no requirement for patients, for any healthcare professionals, including pharmacists. Um, This really is an individual option and choice and self-directed. And it's now available in 10 states plus D.C. So it's not a new idea. It's been around a long time. Uh, The death with dignity law that you refer to, um, Jim, has been available in Oregon for 24 years. And, you know, all of the concerns that we hear about what will happen if the bills pass, none of that has come to fruition. Um, And so uh, 10 or nine more states after Oregon have passed the law. And again, we've seen that it has been working as designed. Um, The folks who are most likely to use it are people with end stage cancer or with ALS or some other uh, neurodegenerative disease where where the trajectory toward death is very predictable. So these are not the kind of folks who may have an episode and then bounce back. These are the right. folks who we know are really marching toward a, a foreseeable death. The, these um, are people who, who have been uh, determined to have less than six months of life left. They are terminally ill and they are going to die in less than six months examined by two doctors, and the patient has to have been determined to have a sound mind and can make his or her own decisions. That's right. No other proxy or guardian or anybody else can step in for the patient. So it's only people with exactly what you said, their ability to make their own decisions. So why do you feel a death with dignity bill is necessary in the state of Minnesota? 
Well, you know, we hear from so many people whose loved one had a difficult experience at the end of life and would have liked this option. Uh, We also know that this is working well in other states. So it has been proven, it has a proven track record of success, and there certainly is the need. Um, Not a lot of people take advantage of it, uh, but it does give comfort to all dying people just to know the option is there. But the current reason why we need to pass the law is that this option is a crime. It's illegal in Minnesota for a a physician to provide a prescription to a patient knowing that their intent is to end their suffering. So uh, that's why the legislature has to get in there and uh, hopefully model this bill after bills in other states that have worked so well and drop this um, criminal criminal, um, category. And how do you know that death with dignity has worked so well in other states? You know, we know that because um, the states provide an annual report. So there's some data collected every year anonymously that data is tabulated and put into an annual report, which is online. Anybody can go and read it. And Oregon has very robust data. They've been keeping this data for 24 years. And so we can see Kind of what I mentioned earlier, which is this is how we know the folks who use it are cancer, ALS. Most of them are in hospice care, the receiving hospice care. Um, and that we know from the data collections that have been, like I said, the most robust comes from Oregon. But if you look at the California, Colorado data, the Vermont data, it very much mirrors what we find in Oregon. And so um, clearly this process has, has worked as, as designed. I want to read you a uh, question that has come in from a listener, uh, and the uh, comment is this. Jim, I'm okay with the process. What's the difference between what your guest terms it and assisted suicide? Well, you know, suicide is really so different from what we're talking about. So, you know, a suicidal patient has often has um, impaired judgment. Um, they are experiencing a crisis. They may have a psychiatric problem. Uh, they may be in, they may there may be alcohol involved. It may be a spontaneous and impulsive act. But the most important thing is that people who choose medical aid in dying are dying. They're dying. So this is simply a mechanism by which they can receive um, an option that will give them. Peaceful. They have full cognitive capacity. They know what they're doing. They're actually more trying to preserve, not destroy their sense. They want to preserve their sense of self. And it's done in community with family and others. Um, It's peaceful, as opposed to suicide, which is done in private. It's a desperate measure. Um, families are shocked. They're not involved in that process. Um, and it's, it's, you know, if you look at the dictionary, a synonym for it is self-destruction. So it, they're so different, both in the in which patients um, determine the, to choose it, and um, but the big important thing is that the difference is, is these people are dying; they're going to die. So whatever we do to help them have comfort at the end of life, or whatever they may choose, is not suicide. They don't have an option to live. Uh, that's very well explained. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to a Minnesota woman who has had a first-hand experience that has made her a very strong 
advocate for death with dignity. Our subject right now is death with dignity. There is a bill coming up in front of the Minnesota legislature in a couple of months called the End of Life Option Act, and it would give terminally ill patients an option rather than having to just suffer. I want to welcome to the program Andrea Anderson of Mountain Lake, Minnesota. Andrea saw firsthand the need for a death with dignity law. Her father had stage four lung cancer in both lungs. The cancer had spread to his neck, spine, ribs, bones, and lymph nodes. He was given less than six months to live. Andrea Anderson now joins us now. Andrea, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for for making yourself available and talking about this important topic. Uh, before we get to the why, let's let's talk a little bit more about what your father went through. Uh, can you tell us how your father's cancer affected him as far as pain goes and his ability to function with basic day-to-day activities? Um, I guess for me, the best way to explain how he felt was uh, he, he had a hard time getting around a lot. He pretty much got stuck to a recliner because he couldn't move. Um, He was on, just to give you a little background of the meds he was on, he was already on Oxycontin. We brought on oral morphine, fentanyl, and that honestly didn't even touch his pain. So he was in a lot of pain and couldn't move. Is that fair to say? Uh, I mean, yeah. Pretty much. He doing going to the kitchen, going to the bathroom, those all became very daunting tasks for him to do. So he was really suffering. Oh yes. The bone pain is what was the worst for him. What was it like for you having to watch your father suffer so much? Um, in the moment I think I kinda just, you know, did what I had to do to take care of him. But, you know, going back, looking at all of the data that I took down, everything that I wrote down, I wondered, how, how did I do it? It was very hard. It, honestly, it was. It was, um, I had moments where I had to, you know, step away to break down because it was hard watching my ma- my father go from a strong man to pretty much a frail, tiny man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, you know, your father, your parent, to see him in so much pain and not able to move, that, that just has to be tough for any child, no matter how old the parent, no matter how old the child. Oh, yes, and no matter how much you think you are prepared for it, you're, you're not. So what did your father say to you about being so miserable? Um, one thing he said is that this isn't living, honey. I I can't work. I can't get around, and the pain is unbearable at times. Um, He had told me that if I had the option to go out on my own terms versus cancers, that is what I would like. But sadly, he did not have that option. Did your father ask you to take his life? Yes, he did. He did on four separate occasions in the very short amount of time that this cancer, it, it, 
took him out. What did your father say, and what did you say when he asked that? He said to me, if there's anything that you can do to help me leave this world, please do it. And I, I mean, I looked at him and I said, Dad, I will, I will do what I can do without going to jail, without doing, you know, what I can't. But I honestly think my father never fully, like, said, I need you to do this because he didn't want to leave that on me. But at the time when he was asking that, in the back of your mind, were you mm-hmm. thinking, boy, I wish I had another option rather than just oh, yeah. see him be so miserable, but you knew you didn't because... Oh, yes. Okay, can you explain that a little bit? Um, I know that if my father would have had the option, he would have... Uh, we would have most definitely planned a day and all gotten together and did the things that he enjoyed doing in his life. And then we could have all got together and watched him peacefully go to sleep versus every day his pain meds are getting up. He's telling me he's in more and more pain. I need more. Nothing's helping. It was horrible to watch him go through that. Did your father needlessly suffer? Yes. Can you elaborate on that? For me, there's no need for any human being to ever go through the pain my father went through. Um, I mean, I know that my father fought very hard for looking through my notes about 22 days because when he would sleep, he would only take four breaths a minute. Not very many. Uh, no. We have to take a break now. When we come back, Andrea, we're gonna, I have more questions for you. I have more questions for Dr. Thoman. Our subject is death with dignity, and we will pick up that subject right after this short break. Our guests, we have two of them. One of them is Dr. Rebecca Thoman. She is the program director of Doctors for Dignity with Compassion and Choices. Our other guest is death with dignity advocate Andrea Anderson of Mountain Lake, Minnesota, who went through a miserable experience with her father. Andrea, I want to go back to you. Basically, can you tell us why you think we need a death with dignity law in Minnesota? Um, I think for people who especially have bone cancer, I mean, any cancer in general that you're terminally ill from, but um, no matter how many opioids you take, you cannot relieve bone cancer or the pain in the bone. And I don't understand why people should have to, if they have that prognosis, why they should have to suffer all the way through the end of it. I mean, it doesn't only affect the person going through it, it affects the families, the everyone that surrounds this person and it can have really bad repercussions. Are you pushing for this law in large part because of what you witnessed happening to your father and heard him say he doesn't want to live anymore, but realized there was no legal option for him? Yes. I, I just, I think there's no, I believe that there's no reason for families to go through that because it, it is it's very heartbreaking it's very hard it takes a toll not only on you but there's a ripple effect i want to go back to dr thoman we have a couple of uh text messages with questions that have come in very uh good questions about uh this how this all works so here's the question for you dr thoman it says jim how do life insurance companies view this 
Any complications if a terminally ill patient elects the solution? Dr. Thoman, what's the answer to that question? Two answers. One is um, this is brought up in every state where the laws have passed, and to, the bills specifically say that for under no condition should this be considered suicide, homicide, etc. And there's even a specific portion of the bill that says that no ins- health life insurance policies uh, can be impacted by this. So it's not suicide in the law. It's not suicide. So a, a, a person's family can collect on life insurance if the terminally ill patient elects death with dignity. That's right. All right. That's important to know. Here's another one. And uh, I think I know the answer to this one. Person wrote in, if the law is passed, do you have to be a Minnesota resident or can you apply for temporary residency? So this is a really uh, good question because one of the changes that's happened over time with these laws is that there have been legal challenges. Every state had had a requirement that the individual requesting medical aid in dying be a resident of the state. However, there have been lawsuits, challenges to the constitutionally constitutionality of that in Oregon and Vermont, which meant Oregon and Vermont uh, then went back and got rid of that requirement that there be a resident. And now there's an active case in New Jersey. So the Minnesota bill does not have a residency requirement. And frankly, I think physicians, there's lots of cross-state health care, and physicians don't want to have to check where you live before they can give you a treatment option. Um, however, the actual process has to happen in the state where it is legal, including the ingestion of the medication. So while somebody doesn't have to live there, they couldn't come to Minnesota, get their medication, and then go back home to their state, because in that state, it's still a crime. So... In, you don't have to establish official residency, but folks who want to go through this process need to go through the entire process in the state of Minnesota. Okay. So let me compare it. I'm, I'm, I want to compare it to abortion. Uh, right now, uh, abortion is illegal in North Dakota. I know it's tied up in the courts, but the, but the legislature has passed uh, an anti-abortion law. The neighboring state of Minnesota, abortion is legal. So many people from North Dakota come into Minnesota and have an abortion. And then when they're done with that, they go back and live in North Dakota. What about this situation? Uh, And I know you touched upon this. So if I live in North Dakota and I am dying and I want to take advantage of death with dignity rather than go through the misery, uh, what do I have to do? Do I have to, uh, can I set up an apartment for a month or so? Uh, uh, how, how long do I have to be there uh, before I'm eligible to go through the whole process if this becomes law? I'll, I'll, I'll walk through that with you, but I'm going to preface it by saying when people are dying and at the end of life, they don't have a lot of capacity to travel. Also, people have to have resources to be able to do that. So while it's theoretically possible, it's not practical. Um, So a person would have to, in the state, 
where the process is legal, they would have to see a physician there, the first physician. Then they would have to see the referring physician, so a second physician in that state. They would have to get their medication filled in a pharmacy, and then they would have to actually ingest the medication in that state. So, um, you know, perhaps they could live with relatives, especially if this is cross state lines where family may be in both Iowa and Minnesota or Iowa and Wisconsin. Um, so it, the process is, it takes time. There are multiple steps to it. And all of that, all of those steps have to happen in Minnesota with a Minnesota provider. Um, the one, the one difference is when there are bordering states where they both have the law. So for example, Oregon, the whole Oregon case came up because on the border of Oregon and Washington, two states that both have the law, a Washington patient who got his care from a doctor in Oregon right across state lines was being prohibited from using it, even though it's legal in Washington state. So that was the main reason for the challenge, so that there shouldn't be um, a criteria that a patient live or reside in the state to get the health care in the state. However, because of the way the statutes are written in other states, they would have to ingest in the state that has the legal process. All right. I have another one, a text that's come in, and uh, both uh, Andrea or Dr. Thoman can answer this one. Uh, one of them writes in, Dr. Jack Kevorkian was a great man. Another one along that theme writes, uh, Jim, death with dignity is a great idea, but it is not any different than what Jack Kevorkian spent many years in jail for. So could either of you explain the difference between uh, the end-of-life option act and what Dr. Kevorkian did? I, I can say a little bit. I'm not an expert on Jack Kevorkian. However, he was not functioning within the medical system. Our goal is to have a safe practice in medical standards of care for patients so they don't have to go outside the system and seek some de desperate option. Um, I don't know all of the details about how Kevorkian cared and, and helped the patients, but what he didn't have, which is what we're trying to do, is real clear standards. Who qualifies? Be sure that patient has capacity. They're not being coerced. They can make their own decision. So what we're describing is something that's a very specific practice with medical standards of care in the safety of the medical system. That's different. Kevorkian just went out and did stuff on his own. We're not um, advocating that at all. All right. And Dr. Thoman, here's another question that Kate just came in. Uh, Jim Shaw, where does hospice stand on death with dignity since they deal with death all the time? You know, hospices all have their own particular uh, views. And what's nice about this law is that Hospices, facilities, organizations, physicians, they get to choose whether or not they participate. So if you look in Oregon, where they've had the law for the longest period of time, about a third of hospices will actually go through the whole process with the patient and participate, allow them, you know, be there when they ingest. Some hospices will participate somewhat in the process, and some will not participate at all, especially religious institutions. And so we absolutely say that is fine. That is their right to decide whether or not they want to participate. Um, we encourage folks to ask about that before you 
go, you know, seek hospice care to find out what the individual hospice policy is. But they're various, same way it's various among among the community in general. And I, I think it's really important to say that, you know, our intention is to have everybody's religious freedom respected. So if you are someone who says, I absolutely would never do this, I think it's wrong, I respect that. And, you, you know, there's nothing that pressures a person to have to do this. Um, so that's our really our goal is that we have an understanding and respect for different spiritual aspects, especially at the end of life, where those personal values are so important to be respected. Dr. Thoman, thank you. We have to take a break. We will do that now and then wrap up our discussion about death with dignity with Dr. Rebecca Thoman and Andrea Anderson right after this. Our guests are on this uh, very important topic of death with dignity are Dr. Rebecca Thoman and Andrea Anderson of Mountain Lake, Minnesota, who saw the need for this bill firsthand. Uh, Before we go back to our guests, I want to read some of the texts that have come in in the few minutes we have remaining. Uh, Here's one. Uh, Jim, my mom refused treatment and passed the next day at 94. A friend refused dialysis and passed in two days in her 90s. Another one. Jim, good topic, just too close to Christmas, too depressing. Another one. Patient's choice only, not family choice. Another one. Absolutely, we all should have this option. My father's wishes sound exactly like the lady on the air now, and I just recently found out they have this option in Canada. Let's go back to Andrea Anderson, whose father suffered miserably and did not have the option of death with dignity. Andrea, uh, my question to you is, you basically feel that dying people should not have to suffer like your father. Is that where you're coming from? Yes. Yes. I believe that they should have the option to go out on their own terms. Like my father was given three to six months. He made it two months. So, I mean, it was very aggressive, very fast. Do you still have lasting memories, if not nightmares, from your father's experience about all the suffering he went through and the, and the fact that uh, he had to just take it until he died? Almost definitely. I mean, it's been two and a half years since he passed, and it has gotten better for for me, but yes, yes, I most definitely do. How important is this issue to you? Um, To me, it's at the top of my list. It is so important because people shouldn't have to suffer that way. It's not right in in any form. And as I recall, your father told you, he said that this is a life not worth living. This is not who I am. When you're sitting there as uh, the daughter of a man who says that, what, what goes through your mind? Um, honestly, it, it shattered my heart to hear my father say that. Um, I never, ever thought I would hear those words come out of my father's mouth. <clears throat> um, it, it broke me. Honestly, it did. And uh, do you plan to get involved either in testifying or lobbying or something when this bill uh, goes to the legislature? I am willing to do anything to help 
people see, because like Rebecca said, there's a lot of mixed messages out there, misinformation, and I want people to understand what we want and why we want it. Well said. Dr. Thalman, what do you think the chances are of passage in the Minnesota legislature? Well, the, we really think we have a good a good shot this year, in part because the legislature has been so keenly focused on um, bodily autonomy issues, empowering individuals to be able to make their own private personal health care decisions. Um, and so we've also had a lot more awareness about this um, topic. And, I, you know, I'd like I'd love to say to the texture that he thought this was depressing and you know, our philosophy is that we're all going to die, and we don't like to talk about it. But accepting the inevitability of death and listening to these stories can actually enrich one's life. And so, although, you know, the first reaction may be, ooh, I don't want to discuss this, I think as you get into these conversations, it really becomes heartening to know that this is something we all share as human beings, and that we can all work together to have a better end-of-life experience, much like we have changed the way childbirth happens in this country. We can change the way that death happens in this country. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, has Governor Waltz, I believe he has, has Governor Waltz said if he would sign this, if this bill comes to his desk? I, I thought he, I'd heard that, but but I'm sure you know better than I do. Uh, Governor Waltz hasn't stated anything publicly regarding signing it, although he did give a positive response to the idea of talking about this next session and continuing to bring this forward. So we're hoping that that will will turn into strong support. Well, uh, this is a a very important topic and and an issue that many, many families have to go through, and it's a very tough one. And there's no doubt in my mind that people should have the option, the choice, you don't want to do it, don't do it. But there's a lot to be said for having an option. Uh, we, we give our pets better options than fellow human beings when, when they are dying. Uh, once again, uh, I want to thank our guests, Dr. Rebecca Thoman and Andrea Anderson, for articulating the importance of this issue. Keep fighting the good fight. All the best to you. And thanks again for joining us today here on News and Views. Thanks, Jim. And thank you, Andrea. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you back. We'll be back with more right after this.